starting a new series um, this morning. Um, we'll begin here. Job descriptions are pretty critical to understand expectations and, and intent for your role. According to LinkedIn, um, a job description is a sample snapshot of what a candidate's life with the company will look like. So if a job description is congruent with your experience as an employee, if the job description is congruent with your experience as, your, as an employee, it increases the chances of the employee to actually enjoy their role, right? Like if you understand what your expectation is and you actually have been communicated that expectation, there's a higher, much higher chance of enjoying your role, feeling purpose, feeling a part of the, the group that you're working with if you understand your job description. Some of you feel clarity around your role and what you do, and it's empowering. And for others of you, you feel confusion and it's maddening. Right? You might feel that in the work that you have, that you've, you don't have clarity in what your role is. It can be very frustrating if that's the case. In the life and the practices of Jesus, there's an invitation for us as humanity to understand our job description. So as I've run in many streams, and maybe you have as well, I've found that the church has not done a good job of empowering the body the body, the community of the church, to understand our job description and to walk with confidence in our job description. And so during this series, we want to hone in on valuing the most significant thing we invest our time into outside of sleep, which is our work. We're going to spend some time over the next several weeks talking about redeeming our rule we're going to talk about that some this morning. So today I want to consider that the cultural mandate, which we'll flesh out in just a minute, is our job description as humanity. A couple points for you. The first is this. Our, as image bearers, humans are uniquely created to rule the earth. So we open up the Bible, and after you get through the table of contents and that page that says the Old Testament. On the next page, in Genesis 1-1, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Simple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a Hebrew idiom, meaning from top to bottom, that he created everything from the heights of heaven to the depths of the lowest part of the sea, that God created everything. That's different from the Enuma Elish, which is a creation story in Babylon. Murdoch is the king god, and it says this, that um, I will establish a savage. This is what Murdoch says. Man shall be his name. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. So in this view, this perspective of creation, humanity was created to do the thing that God didn't want to do. I'm going to get you to work because I don't want to work. His work's rough and nobody wants to do it. So I'm going to make you do it so I don't have to do it. So he creates these minions, these pawns to do the work that he didn't have to do. That's the story that we see in the Enuma Elisha, a famous uh, Babylonian creation story. The gods hated work, and it was a burden. It was beneath them, so they created humanity to be cheap labor. But not so in Genesis. It's not like that at all. The story opens with God himself working to create a world for humanity. 
a place to experience his presence. Humanity is not cheap labor in the story of Genesis. On the contrary, they are created as co-creators. They are created as partnership with God, helping him follow through in creation. We are image bearers. We image God. As he creates, so we create. So we fast forward to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Same chapter a little later on. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we are created to image God. You and me, we are created to image God. And it's the surrounding verses that color in how we image God. So let's go to the verse above and the verse below. It says, then in verse 26 of Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Everybody say dominion. Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We just read this. We'll read it again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So two times in this little text, we read this phrase, dominion. This word, have dominion, is translated by one scholar that says, to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. The point of dominion is to take the world into a new space, into a more orderly civilization. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So man was created in the likeness of God so that we may have dominion or we may rule. John Mark Comer says this. He says, the American dream, which started out as this brilliant idea that everybody should have a shot at a happy life, has devolved over the years into a narcissistic desire to make as much money as possible and as little time as possible, with as little effort as possible, so that we can get off work and go do something else. And in return, we're becoming miserable because we've moved away from our call to rule the earth. We were never called to live a life of hobbies. We were called to rule the earth and subdue it. We are made to image God and to image God in having dominion, ruling and subduing the earth. That's what we've been given. So in the Genesis vision of humanity, we don't work to live. We live to work. So we're invited to make something of this world. We're invited to make it a bit more beautiful than it was in a previous generation. It's maybe why unemployment is both so gut-wrenching and depressing for people. Because when we stop working, we lose part of who we are. Part of who we are is to be a people who work and who rule. 
Same is true of rest that we talked about several weeks ago, a few weeks ago. When all we do is work and work and work and all day we work with no space or margin and we just grind our soul into the ground. We become human machines. We're designed to have a rhythm of six days we work and one day we rest. And this series is about regaining a vision for our rule as we image God under the rulership of God in the world Sadly, by the entrance of sin, a curse came. If you continue in the story of Genesis, you don't go very far when you find that a curse came after Adam and Eve rebelled against the rule of God, tried to take the reins from God and to rule on their own separate from God. This fracture that devastated everything in life. Our new normal, the new normal for us was not the normal in the beginning. We see this fracture take place. And one of the things that was cursed was work. Forever preventing, we're now forever prevented to allow our work to give us the fulfillment that we want it to provide for us. See, work will always leave you a bit hollow, and it's meant to. For in it, we are invited to be drawn to the very one who we're called to image. So God wrote himself into the story of humanity to do what we couldn't. See, we failed to rule, so he came to take the dominion back, giving us rulership again. See, he did what Adam couldn't. Jesus did what Israel couldn't. Jesus did what we couldn't. And now he sits on the throne, king of kings, lord of lords, ruling over all. And he invites us to rule with him. Two times in the New Testament, we hear this phrase that we are heirs with Christ, co-heirs with Christ. It's a language pointing back to the very beginning of time that he has redeemed our rule, that we're invited to rule with him. He has redeemed our relationship with God and our rule in the world to lovingly serve and work so that we can make this world beautiful. So your work is a core part of who you are. And what you're invited into. Your work is not just designed to pay your bills. It's much more valuable. We need to redeem our view of work. See, God's original intent was always for human beings to join him in this vision of seven-day rhythms of work and rest. The original plan has always been for humans to rule over the world. Which leads to the second point. If image of God is every human's job title, then the cultural mandate is our job description. Nine Marks, which is a resource for churches, it describes the cultural mandate as follows. The cultural mandate is the command to exercise dominion over the earth, subdue it, and develop its latent potential. God calls all humans as those made in his image to fill the earth with his glory through creating what we commonly call cultural culture. See, if image of God is our job title, then the cultural mandate is our job description. If LinkedIn is right in saying that a job description is a sample snapshot of what a candidate's life will look like in a company, then the cultural mandate brings clarity to what our life is supposed to look like. 
See, the mandate helps us make sense of our world and what our life is designed to look like under the rulership of God. So there's two parts to the cultural mandate. You see this in Genesis 1:28. The first is to be fruitful and multiply. It says be fruitful and multiply. That doesn't mean you have to get married. Our very Savior was never married. Paul was never married. It doesn't mean uh, we need a space for those who are single in the church to have significant value. You don't need to be married to be fruitful and multiply. You don't need to have kids to be fruitful and multiply. Some of you desire to have kids and you can't. It doesn't mean that you have to have children. I would say this, that those who are parents especially those that are stay-at-home moms or, or dads. This is a, a focal point of God's vision for the world. So if this is you and the season of life you're in, and we're going to talk a lot about work, I just want to say that your role is extremely valuable in this system that God has created. But the text says, fill the earth. Why does that matter, to fill the earth? The heart behind that, John Mark Comer goes on to say, he wants, God wants human beings to make babies and make churches and community centers, schools, Social services, governments, entire country, all of this is, uh, all of this fall under the rubric of fill the earth. God's design for us as humanity is to create civilizations in the world, to be, be fruitful and multiply. Our role is to be part of playing that role of being fruitful and multiplying. It's a part of the cultural mandate. Secondly, uh, it's to subdue and to have dominion. We see that also in Genesis 1, 28. Subdue is to tame something that's wild, to bring order out of chaos, to bring harmony out of disorder. Invited to rule. It says have dominion. This vision of ruling in a way that's beautiful. None of this is oppressive. When you hear rule and dominion, don't hear oppression at all. On the contrary, the, the ways of God is a way of serving through our work to make this world beautiful. The Hebrew word for work is a combination not just of work, but also of worship. It's a combination of worship through our work. That's the design of what work is designed to be. They're connected. Work and worship are designed to be connected at the hip. And so Genesis, what it's doing is saying that all of our life is designed to be a place of worship, even our work. What I love about that is it crushes the wall of that sacred-secular divide. And I'm just aggressively desiring to tear down because it is bringing such destruction in our faith and how we live our lives. To think that spirituality is something we do on Sunday or maybe early morning before you go to work. And then you have this secular reality that's opposite. And it's the farthest thing of what God designed this thing to be. There's an interweaving of our, our work and our life to be worked together, that work and worship are designed to uh, be merged together. So secular work has no less dignity and nobility than sacred work of ministry. We are both body and soul, and the biblical ideal of work includes both the physical thriving as well as spiritual. So if you have an idea that thinks, Man, if I, if I was called to ministry, I'd, I'd be able to work for the Lord. But like in my job as an accountant or my job as a software developer, 
just has me in this kind of secular place. I just want to invite you to kind of rethink how you think about that because it's never designed to be that ministry has intrinsically higher value versus someone who's a counselor. It's designed to overlap in this very beautiful way as we cultivate and make this world more beautiful. So all work matters to God. All work that develops, all work that cares, all work that supports, all work that builds, all work that unifies, all work that that builds systems, all work that creates, they're all designed to work together in this vision of this cultural mandate that is our job description. Jeff Van Dozer um, says this, he says, food that nourishes roofs that hold out the rain, shade that protects from the heat of the sun, the satisfaction of the material needs and desires of men and women. When businesses produce material things that enhance the welfare of the community, they are engaged in the work that matters to God. As we have a vision of the cultural uh, mandate and our vision to be a part of that, we see that all of these different facets of our life, including what you do, is designed to be a part of what God's doing in the world. I love how Genesis 2 continues and expands on this theme. So if you hop over to the next page, uh, in Genesis 2, 8 through 15, I'd like to read a couple of verses that expand and maybe color this in a bit more. Genesis 2, 8, starting in verse, Genesis 2, starting in verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The The name of the first is is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hevelah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bejilium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So God creates a garden. The garden's called Eden. And he then creates these humans and puts the humans in the garden. He provides resources within the garden. And he invites them to cultivate and keep and make this chaotic space beautiful. I don't know about you, but I, I have been guilty of, of skipping that paragraph that talks about the four rivers. I'm like, come on, just got to cut to the chase. What is this? And so sometimes, maybe I'm alone here, but I've gathered that there are times where some of us have the potential of skipping over paragraphs like this that don't feel like they make sense. But it's so essential to what the author is trying to tell us. It's telling us that God provided resources within the inhabited land that the humans were designed to leverage and use to cultivate and keep to help create the culture in their day. The Lord God planted a garden and took the man and put him in the garden to rule it, take care of it, to use the resources to cultivate and keep. 
So this work, this cultural mandate is a part of our job description, pre-sin, post-sin, and what we'll find out in a little bit, also post-restoration when Jesus comes again. So the reality is there is an inherent wildness to the world. It's untamed, it's out of control, and it needs to be ruled. And in Eden, we see it's filled with raw materials, with pent-up potential, But that potential only can be experienced through the humans actually leveraging their resources and having dominion and ruling over it. Tim Keller says that rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. We're designed to take the raw material of life, the secular side of life, if we think about it in that way, that just the, the realities of life, we're designed to take those things and actually rearrange them in such a way that causes people to flourish. So we are image bearers as we are engineers, designers, doctors and nurses, musicians and teachers and accountants and managers. See, if image of God is our a job title, then the cultural mandate is our job description. We're designed to take this world and we're designed to, to make it beautiful, which leads us to the final thought, which is this. The garden that was in the beginning has become a great city in the end. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see this garden, this garden called Eden. And you fast forward to the very end of the scripture, to, Gen- uh, to Revelation 21, and 22, and we see a reference of a city that what was once a garden has now become this great, beautiful city. Why? Because the garden that was in the beginning has become a great city in the end. There are a lot of parallels if you go, if you compare Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 21 and 22, we see that there's a reference of a tree of life and a river. There's no longer will be any curse. They will reign forever. See, the future is the return of the past when a future Eden comes again. In Revelation 21 and 22, we see 14 references to a city because what was once a garden has now become a city. So for you and I, we are modern day Adam and Eve. And we're called to cultivate and we're called to keep And we're called to submit to this cultural mandate that is our job description. See, our job is to take all the raw materials that are in front of us, to work them, take care of them, rule them, subdue them, wrestle with them, and service to God and worship to God who made us. This is our job description. This is your job description. That it's not just something that you, you go to church on Sunday and then you kind of grind through the week until you go to church again. But we're actually invited to participate in God's work in the world as we are heirs with him. The question is, do we believe this? Like, Do you believe that your work matters? And maybe you're not in the right place. And we're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land with that in just a couple minutes. This series might lead you to explore other job opportunities that are different than the one you're in right now. And that's, that's great if, if that might be what God's calling you to. But do we believe that your work actually matters? And what you do and how you serve and how you help and how you lead? William Dial says this, If lay people cannot find any spiritual meaning in their work, 
They are condemned to living a certain dual life, not connecting what they do on Sunday morning with what they do the rest of the week. They need to, we need to discover that the very actions of daily life are spiritual and enable people to touch God and the world, not away from it. Such a spiritual will, such a spiritual will say, your work is your prayer. See, why understanding our role in the world under the rule of God is so important. It's important because it empowers us to actually do what God's called us to in our job description. It's in this a series that we want to renew our vision of what it looks like to rule. What it looks like to rule in our lives. See, your work has dignity. Amen. Your work has dignity if it's designed to help make this world a beautifully functioning civilization. There's some work that doesn't lead us to have a beautifully functioning civilization. There's some work that requires you to not have integrity. There's some work that requires you to oppress people. And that work is not God-honoring. What I'm emphasizing is a, a work that helps us become a beautifully functioning civilization. See, as we attempt to redeem our rule, it is our job to see our role, to work with care, humility, and excellence. Dorothy Sayers says this, I love this quote, that the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in the leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, the very first command that his religion makes upon him is that he should be making good tables. Helps us rethink what it looks like to live out this life. That in your work, you have the ability to be distinct as image bearers of God in the places that you work that aren't just the church. Like if our vision about work is this, the, the vision or the, the pinnacle is, is seeing it through the lens of ministry, we're missing the point that we're all called to this job description of cultivating, keeping, making beautiful. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about how that looks practically. But your work has intrinsic value, not merely instrumental value. I heard a story about an individual who for years of his life, he followed Jesus for years. And for the longest time, he, his vision for his work was to make as much money as he could so that he could be extremely generous towards the kingdom. And that's what he did. For years and years and years, he would, he would work and work and work to be generous towards church planning, towards kingdom endeavors, towards the church, and so forth. But as he got older, he began to realize that his, his work didn't simply just have an instrumental value, a means to an end, but it had an intrinsic value. That in and of itself, if he sought to honor God in his work, his work had intrinsic value. See, your work has God-honoring value in itself. It's not just a means of generosity. Though we ought to be generous with our finances, it's not, mean, it's not just a means in that way. It's also beautiful. I'll end with this parable from our King Jesus. Supposing that the kingdom was coming very soon, Jesus gave a parable that was like this. He said, a nobleman went into a far away country to receive the kingdom for himself, and then he was going to return. And, and as he was gone, he called forth ten servants, and he gave them ten minas. These minas were a good sum of money. It was about a three-month's wage. And, and he gave this money to his, 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 the people that worked for him. And he said, go and, and make much of what you can do with this money. When I return, I'm going to uh, see if you give 
I'm gonna, you're going to give an account. So he called. He came back. A long time had come. He eventually comes back. And when he comes back, he asks them what they did with the loan that he had given to them. We pick up in Luke chapter 19. It says this. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good and good servant, because you have been faithful and at very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to and he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. See, the cultural mandate is this vision of cultivating and keeping. What Jesus says here is that we're not just going to rule in this life and then we're going to be zapped up into heaven and live on clouds for eternity. Like the very design is that the kingdom is going to come to the earth. A great city will descend and we will continue to work. Free of shame, free of trying to find fulfillment in our work, enjoying God and his presence and rule in our lives. That's where this thing is going. And it creates dignity in our work. That in all of our work, we're going to see there, there will be some that are going to rule over cities as governors over cities. This is where this thing is going. Tim Keller goes on to say, according to the Bible, this world is the forerunner of the new heavens and the new earth, which will be purified, restored, and enhanced at the renewal of all things. No other religion envisions matter and spirit living together in integrity forever. And so birds flying and oceans roaring and people eating, walking, and loving are permanently good things. Friends, as I begin our time, I just want to say that you were created to work. You were created to rule. You were created to enter into this space that God invites us into. So over this series, we're going to talk about calling and the mundaneness of work and integrity and disciple making and other aspects of your rule. But I I want to just give room for this as we close, that some of you may gain clarity to stay where you're working right now. For others of you, you may realize that you're not in the right spot. Some of you may take steps of faith that you didn't think that you would take. But I would simply want to invite us into submitting to God's design for our life. Six days we work, one day we rest. Called to cultivate, keep, make beautiful what we have before us, using untamed resources and making them beautiful in a way that honors God. We're invited to redeem our rule through having a vision of this cultural mandate. Let's pray together. Father, for some of my friends this morning that may just struggle understanding how their work matters. I pray that you would help reorient and shape and empower what it looks like to live under your rule as you've called us to rule, called us to serve, called us to work. Lord, I pray that you would give us a fresh perspective of what this looks like for some of us that just have been living life kind of under that American dream that's just kind of led us to dread work. Pray you give us a renewed vision of what it looks like. Pray you redeem our vision of what it looks like to rule, Lord. We invite you into the space. 
We want you to be the Lord over all of our life, not just Sunday morning, not just aspects of our lives, but we want to open all the doors to our house, and we want you to rule and reign over all. And so we submit to you this morning, and we ask that you would. Your kingdom would come, and your will would be done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.